Welcome to Fit Body Happy Joints. My name is Shannon. Today, I'm excited to welcome our guest, Dr. Stacy Sims, on the podcast today. We talk about mistakes that women make when eating around their training and how women truly have unique physiology and shouldn't just eat and train like the men do and how she really emphasizes how so much of the exercise physiology studies are based around men, not women. So in this podcast, it's super interesting. We talk about how to eat and train in your 20s and 30s, and then we get into how to eat and train in perimenopause and postmenopause, and really how to fuel your fitness during that time. Before we get into my conversation with Stacy, I just want to say that this information is very different than the information you heard a couple of weeks ago on the podcast from Dr. Ben Bickman. And this is not to confuse you or to say that one expert is right and one expert is wrong. My intention with this podcast is to ask the questions and kind of get you to tinker with things in your own fitness and nutrition and see how things land for you. And I'm never going to give you nutrition advice because number one, that is not my formal training. And number two, after after talking to so many experts in the nutrition field about these things, I'm realizing that there is so much information out there, a lot of times contradictory information, and it's really difficult to know what's right for you. So again, it's not necessarily to confuse you. It's just to give you all of the information and then you can create decisions that work in your own life based on this information. And if you need some help, Peyton and I did a podcast last week. And at the end, we kind of talked about how you can use the scientific method on yourself to test out what's working for you and what isn't. And that step-by-step process is around minute 32 of episode number 64, if you want to go listen to that. And again, this is not giving you nutrition advice ever. This is just giving you information. So with that out of the way, let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Stacey Sims. Dr. Stacey Sims is a PhD. She is an international exercise physiologist and nutrition scientist, and her goal is to really revolutionize exercise, nutrition, and performance for women. She has directed tons of research programs at different universities, including Stanford, and she focuses on female athlete health and performance, and really pushing the dogma to improve research on all women. So Stacy is super accomplished. She has over 70 peer-reviewed papers. She has multiple books. She has a TEDx talk. This woman really knows what she's talking about, and I really think that you are going to enjoy our conversation. So without further ado, here's Stacey Sims. Welcome, Stacey Sims, Dr. Stacey Sims, to the podcast. I have gotten so many requests from my my audience to bring you on. So I am super excited that you're here today. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to chatting. Yes. So today we're going to talk all about nutrition, specifically for females in different stages of our life. Um, I love your whole anecdote that women are not small men and that we shouldn't eat or train like small men. And so I just think that's so important and so misunderstood in our culture and our fitness culture and the fitness world. So first I, I want to kind of focus on three different groups. So like menstruating women, men, women in their, you know, twenties, thirties, and then perimenopause, which is mm-hmm. pre-menopause, correct? Menopause and then post-menopause. I know that might be a lot for us to cover, but we can kind of <laughs> keep it high level if you want. So can you start, let's start with menstruating women. 
what should, as far as like building muscle, what should menstruating women be focused on with their nutrition if muscle building is their goal? Eating enough. This is the biggest Mm. thing that we see. Like women just do not eat enough. And part of it is the whole 80s, you know, burn calories, eat low fat. You want to burn more than you take in calorie deficit. And it's absolutely the wrong thing to do when we're trying to build mass because the body needs what we say abundance in order to build lean mass. So when we're talking about like guidelines for female athletes about what to do, the most important thing is to make sure that you're eating enough and to eat around your training. Because if we don't eat around our training, then our body stays in this breakdown state. And if you're staying in a breakdown state, it does not get the signaling to build lean mass. Matter of fact, it has a signal to break down lean mass because one of the first things that goes when we're in a very high stress, low calorie state is lean mass. So if we're trying to build mass and strength, we need to make sure that we fuel for what we are doing and recover well from it. I love that. That just goes to show the the whole like eat less, move more thing may not be the best for women. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, especially if you're already active. Like if you are working with people, men or women, that are sedentary and just trying to get healthy, then that's a very appropriate thing to say. But when you're working with especially women who are have a purpose, like they want to build mass, they want to get stronger, they want to change their body composition, then we really have to look at the nuances of how metabolism works. We know that by and large, women do better in a fed state because our bodies have a different um, threshold for calorie sensitivity, carbohydrate sensitivity, where men sit around 15 to 20 uh, calories per kilogram of fat-free mass before they start having endocrine function or dysfunction and, and other like health issues, where women sit at 35, preferably 45. So there's a huge discrepancy there. So when we see all this fasted training stuff, intermittent fasting, that kind of stuff, it's all on male data. And when we translate it over to women, it doesn't work. Especially if you are looking to stay healthy, we want to be stress resilient because if we're healthy and stress resilient, our body can take on training load. If we take on training load, then we can adapt to it. And that's the whole idea of why we are training, why we are trying to get fitter is to induce a stress so our body overcomes that stress and can be able to adapt to it. So if it encounters it again, it knows what to do. But if you're not well fed, you're highly stressed, you don't eat in and around your training then you're putting an additional stress on from training that your body's like, I don't know what to do with this. So it's kind of a moot point to actually go in and train. And the other aspect is carbohydrate. We have all these, you know, you put in Shutterstock to put up anything and you put in carbohydrate and there's all these like women images of, no, I don't want that. No, big X's stuff because there's huge fear of carbohydrate. But women need carbohydrate. We fuel our bodies differently than men where we as women, from a biological perspective, use more free fatty acids and spare carbohydrate. And then when we are in the recovery mode, our body is very quick to come back to baseline levels. But if we are low in carbohydrate, that baseline level has a higher amount of cortisol that stays. And we don't want that either, because when you have a higher amount of cortisol, then again, it breaks down lean mass. We need carbohydrate during training in order to 
allow our muscles to work properly, to hit intensities, to hit the loads that we need because we clear blood sugar a lot quickly until we start really tapping into that fat source. Whereas men, carbohydrate. And even if we're looking at training adaptations and we know that your body starts to learn how to use more fat and spare carbohydrate, these sex differences still exist even after training adaptations where women will preferentially burn fat but still need carbohydrate. So we have to look to use carbohydrate from an external source or make sure that we're fed before we go in so we have more circulating carbohydrate. Otherwise, like I say, it's a it's a moot point to go training. Two follow-up questions about that. Number one, dosage of um, of carbs that you recommend, like grams per carbs that you recommend. And then number two, I want to talk about the whole like insulin resistant thing with that comes with fasting and low carbs and things like that. So I want your take on kind of both of those things. Yeah, it's really hard to say how many grams um, of carbohydrate someone needs when we're looking at what their body composition is, what their lifestyle is. If we're looking at an acute dose of carbohydrate for training, it's not really have 20 grams per hour. It's making sure that you have carbohydrate and protein before you do any kind of training. So it could be a piece of sprouted grain toast with nut butter, or it could be a protein fortified coffee or banana and peanut butter. Something super small before you go training, regardless of what time of day, but really important if it's first thing in the morning. And then recovering well with your next meal or something specific that has around 30 to 35 grams of protein with some carbohydrate afterwards. When we start getting into the nuances of how many actual grams of this and that, I kind of take a step back because that's really nutrient science. It's not really looking at the whole food aspect and what someone needs and how depleted they are. So the best advice is really make sure you eat something before and after training. And then we can also get into like menstrual cycle and how that low and high hormone phase also affects carbohydrate. So we're looking at menstrual cycle and we know that day one is the first day bleeding And then around day 14 is ovulation. After ovulation is the luteal phase where estrogen and progesterone come up to around day 28 where they drop again. In that low hormone phase, our bodies are more like men in the fact that we can access carbohydrate more readily and we tend to use more carbohydrate because we don't have estrogen that kind of interferes. But after ovulation, when estrogen estrogen, progesterone both come up, they both inhibit our body's ability to access carbohydrate and store it. So we have to look at how we manipulate carbohydrate intake across the phases where we know that if you have a greater amount of your total calories coming from carbohydrate in the high hormone phase, it eliminates performance and training differences between the phases because our body has more circulating carbohydrate, more available carbohydrate so that we can still hit intensities and we can still do the work we need to do in that high hormone phase. We also have changes in insulin and insulin sensitivity across the menstrual cycle as well. So when estrogen is low, progesterone is low. So that first part of the cycle, we are relatively um, sensitive to insulin. So after ovulation, and we see this in a lot of the diabetic research, we become more insulin resistant. And this is primarily because the body is like, wait, I need any kind of available carbohydrate coming in to be shuttled to building the endometrial lining because we need a very thick amount of stored glycogen within that lining in case there's an egg that's implanted because we need to have available fuel for the high energetics of 
the egg and sperm, the fertilized egg, that is uh, like replicating so quickly. So when we're looking from a holistic kind of training scope, we have that insulin resistance, but it doesn't mean that we don't want you to eat carbohydrate. We want a greater amount of total calories coming in from complex carbohydrate to be able to support the system, both immune system, the endometrial lining, training, and stress. So there's a slight nuances between those phases to understand. This is also why women have more cravings in the high hormone phase. Our metabolism is slightly elevated. We need more carbohydrate. So women will be like, I'm really hungry. I'm craving carbs. I'm craving salt. And these are all the things that are going to build that endometrial lining. So when it comes to cravings, then um, there's all this like messaging about like manage your cravings and all of that. Do you think, listen to your cravings, eat something salty, eat something high in carbs. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I, I don't like to put a negative scope on food. Because mm-hmm. I mean, everyone has this negative self-talk. Like we come from a long history within the fitness industry of things are good and things are bad and we shouldn't do this and we should do that. And when we're talking about premenstrual sy- syndrome, when we're talking about cravings, we're talking about all the things that are happening specific to biological females in that high hormone phase, there's a rationale behind it. Our metabolism comes up around 100 to 150 calories a day, depending on how big we are, small, big, whatever. Um, Because progesterone increases our core temperature, there's a lot of uh, tissue turnover, we're building more tissue, like the body needs more calories. Our immune system also has a switch where we are more pro-inflammatory instead of looking at a surrounding virus and bacteria and getting rid of it, we have an inflammatory response. That's also highly energetic. So our body requires more calories. It requires more carbohydrate. And this is why we start getting cravings because we have this cultural nuance where women try to eat the same thing every day regardless. So their calorie count is very tight. The amount of macronutrients they eat is very tight. So when we get into that high hormone phase, they start to feel really bad about, oh, I'm hungrier. I want to eat chips. I want some chocolate. So all of these things that have just been ingrained are as being negative. Matter of fact, we need to take a little bit of a step back and be like, well, the body actually needs a little bit more carbohydrate. It needs some more magnesium. It needs some more zinc. And these are the things that we're craving. Part of it's a, a, a neurotransmitter aspect of dopamine and serotonin when you feel a little bit better that we get from when we eat carbohydrate and chocolate and that kind of stuff. But then the other is this huge biological drive where we need a little bit more. We know that in research where women are not restricted, they do tend to eat more and it just kind of balances out. So they don't gain weight. They don't put on fat like everyone freaks out. If I eat more, I'm going to put weight on. They don't. Even if they are eating more in that high hormone phase and then their appetite kind of comes down in the low hormone phase because their body in tune leaves like, I don't need as much. So we start eating a little bit more in tune with our bodies and our physiology, things start to even out. But it's a really, really, really difficult thing to do for so many women to actually kind of let all of those rules go and give in to so many of the cravings and the ideas that so far have been so negative. Yeah. Well, I think that, well, number one, there's so much (laughs) opposing quote unquote evidence in the world of nutrition and fitness that I'm sure you're very aware of as well. And, and number two is that I think 
so many people want structure and they want yes or no. Should I, should I do this? Should I do that? They want black and white. And really the hardest part, but the most sustainable, in my opinion, when it comes to health is to is to get in tune with your body and what it needs. What are your kind of tips on, on getting intuitive with your eating? Um, there's a little exercise I like a lot of my athletes to do because as you start getting to a higher level of training, you do have changes in your um, hunger. You have changes in satiation. Appetite hormones are a little bit dysfunctional. And a lot of people, when they're doing lots of high intensity work, they don't have an appetite. And I see this in a lot of my athletes and I'm trying to get them to eat more in order not to get into a low energy state. So I have them eat before and after training, have their next meal. And then in the afternoon, there's a four to five hour gap. Knowing that they are going to get hungry because if they're training hard in the morning, even though they've had meals, that long of a gap between food, their body's like, wait, afternoon, I'm hungry. I've been doing all this stuff in the day. I'm awake. I'm active. I still need calories. Plus I'm trying to uh, repair from all the training. And then I, I have them write down how they feel. I want them to know if they're feeling tired, if they're feeling lethargic, if they're feeling unfocused or focused. So, and I do this for two to three days. So they start to see the patterning. Then on about the third or fourth day, I have them eat like a protein carbohydrate, good mini meal, about three or four hours in, right around the time when they start to have like these nuances of, I feel really tired. I feel lethargic. I'm a bit irritable. So then they can then feel what it like, what it is like to have food so that it can start to understand what their hunger cues are, that it's not the fact that they trained too hard and didn't have enough sleep. It is a reflection of the fact that they need food. So it is trying to get people to understand that hunger cues don't necessarily mean stomach rumbling, but what are those hunger cues to your own body? And we start to understand that being really lethargic and low on energy and irritable is not a sign of, uh, I need coffee or I need to take a nap. It's a sign of, I need food. So trying to get people to understand again, how they feel around food. And I think a lot of women have that misstep where they get up early, they go do training, they might have something small after training, then they immediately get into work or whatever they're doing. It comes around lunchtime and they're like, oh, I feel really flat and awful. I better eat something or I don't feel like eating, but I probably should. Sometimes they don't even and they go through it or they have coffee or they have a smoothie and they're very disingenuous with what it feels like to be hungry. So understanding that if you're getting up and not having any food, you're going training and then you're delaying food intake, then you may or may not have lunch. That huge gap right there is a section where you can really dial in, understand what it means to be hungry, fuel your body for when you need it so that you can adapt to training stress, you can adapt to life stress, stay out of low energy availability. And find that if you are doing appropriate measures that time in and around training, that when the afternoon comes, you don't have that dead end, I need to go home, I'm so tired of being here. And you actually have a full day of energy. And it comes back to fueling and eating well. You're, you're talking a lot about this low energy state. Can you touch more on what that means and, it's, and why it's something that we want to avoid? 
So low energy availability is a precursor to a bigger syndrome called relative energy deficiency in sport. So when we look at low energy availability, it's technically having enough um, calories coming in that you can support lying on the couch all day, watching Netflix and not doing anything. Um, so that's just your heart, your brain, your liver, all of your biological functions, as well as calories to support you getting up and doing your normal activities in the day that is not exercise related. And then having additional fuel available for your training and recovery for training. So there's really three steps to it. Most people think about calories as uh, I might want to stay below that 1800 because I'm trying to change my body composition or I'm a small petite woman or maybe not. And I've been told I can should only go up to 1800 calories. When we look at that, that's barely enough to sustain getting up off the couch to go up to the TV and change the channels or to walk around the kitchen and tidy up because we know that resting energy levels sit around 11 to 1200 calories. And as soon as you get up and start moving around and doing the things you need to do in a day, that's another four to 600 calories just to exist. So that brings us up to that 1800 calorie mark. And then if you have a high stress job or you're doing lots of walking around from errands or work or whatever you're doing, that's additional calories that need. And then when you add training on top of that, we need even more. So we're looking at staying out of a low energy availability state is making sure that we have enough calories coming in to support everything that we're doing, including life stress, as well as making sure that the timing of the food intake is in and around exercise. We know that for women, it's really, really important. For men, they can get away with kind of bookending their calories because they have a longer window post-training before they come back down to baseline. They don't have as much cortisol increase. And their um, sensitivity to calorie deficit is not as, um, I guess, a threshold isn't as sensitive as it is for women. So when we're looking at staying out of a low energy state, we want to make sure that we have enough calories coming in during the day, but also in and around training. Because if we don't, we know that only four days of a low energy state, our resting metabolic rate and our thyroid take a hit. So we start getting a downturn in conservation. So when we start having a conservation of resting metabolic rate, we start having a little bit of thyroid misstep and dysfunction. Then we start seeing undue amount of body fat coming on, the lethargy, the fatigue, the feeling like you're not recovering. And if it goes for a little bit longer, we start to see menstrual cycle dysfunction. So it's not necessarily a shortening or lengthening of the cycle, but it can be an irregularity in the bleed, bleed pattern. And if it goes a little bit longer, then we start to see a lot of um, symptoms of what we call the relative energy deficiency support, which is gut problems, cardiovascular issues, psychological issues, immune issues. So most of the time people were calling it overtraining syndrome and they do kind of correlate, but it's way harder to come out of REDS than it is to come out of an overtraining state. And I'd say based on a lot of the research that we've been doing, over 50% of recreationally active women are in a low energy state. And it perpetuates because if you're in a low energy state, you're not adapting to training. Unfortunately, from society, we have this idea that, oh, we're not training hard enough or eating too much, which then further puts you in a low energy state. So it becomes this downward spiral.
which brings me back to the start of women need to eat more. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, what, how do you toe that line between eating enough and eating too much? How do you recommend towing that line? I always tell um, women to look at their training as the like cornerstone where you want to eat something before training. You want to eat something after training and then you can have your regular meals throughout the day. Right. And a lot of women take that misstep where they don't fuel in and around or they don't do any kind of fueling in the morning. And then they end up with a large load at night, which then is not so great for sleeping, body composition, appetite hormone regulation. So we just step it backwards. And if you step it backwards and you're fueling in and around all your training, then your body kind of falls into a good state where you can become more in tune to appetite. You end up not eating too much because if you're doing the fueling appropriately, when you get home from work or in the late afternoon, you're not ravenous. You're not like, I need to eat something while I'm making dinner. And then I eat too much at dinner and then I want an evening snack and end up having a 1500 calorie intake from 4 p.m. to 9 p.m. Or if we back it up and have most of that in the day and then we can be a little bit more sensible as we are thinking about and, and being more attentive to how we are from a hunger standpoint. When women think about overeating or eating too much, it's a rarity for women who are recreationally active to actually have an extra 800 calories a day, unless they are, are going out to eat all the time and eating all the things. Um, so I get frustrated with the whole, you know, calories in, calories out, eating too much comes back to let's plan where our calories are coming in in the day, which also gives women kind of the freedom to not have the negative self-talk about food and what that means in their relationship with food. Totally. I know in the past with, um, you know, if I were to restrict um, or try to eat less or whatever, I would always want it more like I'm and I, you would end up just binging on the weekends. I mean, I went through that in college of just like eating very, very little during the week. And then the weekends, it was like, eat everything in the pantry, eat everything in sight. And it not only was it miserable, but it didn't work. <laughs> I know. It's so, so true. It just, it was, it's yeah. And I think so, so many people fall into that, not only just women. So I think that's really important that you just pointed out. Um, Let's shift gears a little bit from um, nutrition and talk about some training mistakes that you see in um, the age group of 20s and 30s. I know, you know, maybe this age group isn't necessarily thinking about menopause, but is there a way that we can set ourselves up for success when we do hit menopause? Yeah, regardless of age, I always tell women you need to get in the weight room. And I say that as a caveat of being a longtime endurance athlete who's like, ah, wait. Um, But I have done weights throughout my entire life because I understand that it's good for injury prevention. It's good for maintaining bone mass. And you need to have that to build lean mass in order to be functional as you age. Because we we start losing lean mass relatively quickly when we hit our mid-30s. And when we hit that menopause transition in our mid 40s and beyond, it's a rapid change. But if we're looking in our 20s and 30s, you can get away with a little bit more, which is fortunate, but not so fortunate. Right. (laughs) Um, 
So you want to put a precedence on weight training. And the other thing that we know with weight training is there's a metabolic shift for women, where if you're doing resistance training, it actually signals women to get rid of the cereal fat or that deep abdominal fat, where we start shifting a lot more of that. So women who are concerned about having extra body fat in and around the abdominal area, resistance training is super, super beneficial. Um, so making that the building block. If you are a power athlete, of course, you want to use resistance training. If you are recreationally fit and you're doing like F45, Orange Theory, the strength training in that is not enough. We need to look at actually putting a couple of sessions aside that's purely just weight oriented, not cardiovascular hit oriented, and then throwing in some hit sessions. And you can also do the long endurance stuff and not have as much repercussion as when you get older. Um, but again, the cornerstone for all of that is that resistance training. It should be the base for everything. Yep, totally. Could not agree more. Could not agree more. Do you find when you're, you touch a little bit on endurance training, but do you find that women in this age group often are overdosing the cardio or what are your views on, on cardio in addition to resistance training? Yeah, I feel like there's been such a push with the F45s and the orange theories and the boot camps and the hit classes. I see a lot of women who are in their twenties who are very much aware of wanting to go to the gym or interacting and they'll go to the same class every day. Or if it's not every day, then they'll hit their boot camp three times a week. And in between they're like going to spin classes or they're doing another kind of high intensity. And they end up falling into that modern intensity zone where it's too hard to be easy for recovery and adaptation at a lower intensity. And it's too easy to be hard for that adaptation at the higher end where we get a lot of functional improvements of VO2 and, and muscle functionality. Um, and when we start hitting that modern intensity zone too often and staying there, then we have an increased rise in our baseline cortisol. And we're already in a high stress environment just by living in today's time, right? So we have an increase in baseline cortisol. We have an increase in baseline cortisol. And again, it has repercussions on building lean mass, on sleep, on health, immunity, stress. So I really want women in their 20s and 30s to understand that polarized training that becomes super, super important when you get into peri and postmenopause. So understanding that when you're doing resistance training, it's low on the cardiovascular standpoint, high on the neuromuscular stress. So we're looking at the heavy loads, the power, the speed, and then the high intensity work or the cardiovascular work is not on the same day. We are looking at a couple of times a week, maybe at the most three times a week of specific high intensity work. And then the rest of it is either active recovery or really low intensity stuff, unless you're specifically training for an event, then it's a different conversation where we have to see what is the event, when is it, um, what is the duration, intensity, all that kind of stuff to then be able to manipulate the resistance training and the high intensity. So let's talk about, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about menopause. What changes when it, if anything, in regards to nutrition during this time, nutrition and training during this time? So menopause is interesting. It's that one point in time on the calendar that marks 12 months of no periods. In the five or six years before that, we call perimenopause. And this is where we have the biggest metabolic and body composition changes. 
where we start having a, a misstep in our estrogen progesterone and we start having changes in those ratios, we see well, a lot of women will start saying they feel like they got squishy overnight, where we have an increase in um, fat gain, a decrease in lean mass, we have a decrease in bone mass, and it is because these ratios of hormones are changing. So when we're looking at an eye of nutrition to support us through this, we need to up our protein and we have to look at complex carbohydrates. And again, the timing of food is super important. The way to manipulate body composition is to really fuel for what you were doing and recover from it. So it's not doing the intermittent fasting or fasted training. It's not um, exercising in a, after not eating, like purposefully or, or unintentionally. It's making sure you have some kind of small snack before your training, even if it's just a resistance training session, because we are trying to minimize that cortisol response. Because as we get into this peri to post-menopause state, we do have an increased sympathetic drive um, by the nature of progesterone having a misstep. So we don't have some of the parasympathetic drive of progesterone. And we're always in the sympathetic upstate. So we have a higher baseline of cortisol. So when we're looking at doing high intensity work, we do need to eat afterwards because we want to take advantage of growth hormone and the anti-inflammatory response that comes with it we don't eat afterwards, then we have a higher level of cortisol that stays elevated and it's really hard to bring it down. So again, just as I was saying earlier, we want to stay out of low energy availability when we're in our 20s and 30s. It's kind of really important in this perimenopause, menopause state where you need to fuel for what you're doing. Our protein needs increase. We're looking at 35 to 40 grams post-training and having regular doses of protein throughout the day because we need to keep our amino acid pool elevated and when we're talking about carbohydrate, you can have some more quick hit carbohydrate around training, but then you're reaching for fruit and veg as the bulk of your carbohydrate intake throughout the day. I want to touch quickly on cortisol, the cortisol spike, because I just had um, Dr. Ben Bickman on the podcast, who is a, um, he is uh, a proponent of fasting. And he was talking, I brought this up about the cortisol spike at when during fasting. And he said he's aware of one study in humans that um, the, that cortisol stays elevated acutely and then it comes back down to baseline. Do you know how long cortisol stays elevated or are there other studies about, about this where it is that cortisol spike is negatively affecting these women? So in perimenopause, the there isn't a cortisol spike. It's an increase in baseline cortisol. So your overall low, like your resting level, of course, we have a spike at seven, dip at four, but your overall like plateau baseline of cortisol is elevated because we are in a sympathetic drive. We have more, um, it affects more of our autonomic nervous system. So this is why women are more anxious and can't sleep well. They have a lot of um, depression and like unintentional panic and that whole anxiety. It's that sympathetic drive. Uh, part of that elevation in baseline cortisol, we see as an interference with our neurotransmitters as well. So when we are looking at what's happening in the brain, we have a decrease in dopamine because of a cortisol response. And also when we start to have more estrogen dominance, we end up having uh, more estrogen that crosses the blood-brain barrier, which hypersensitizes serotonin. In some regards, we think that's good, but when the estrogen drops again, we have a, a serotonin dump, which causes depression and anxiety in conjunction with that elevation of baseline cortisol. In the sympathetic drive, we need to find ways of reducing it. 
So when we're talking about fasted training in women, the responses are different than in men. Uh, I'd be very keen to listen to his podcast to see what kind of data he's drawing on. Because when we look at the autophagy and the telomere length and all the information that's coming out about fasted training, it's primarily based on male individuals or specifically postmenopausal non-active women. There were two studies that looked at postmenopausal sedentary women, showed that fasting was beneficial. But when you add exercise into the mix, exercise in itself is a fasted state. And the um, positive outcomes of exercise stress supersede that of fasting. When we're looking at longevity, when we're looking at metabolic control, there was a really fantastic uh, meta-analysis that came out yesterday looking at intermittent fasting and the data for men versus women. There's no data to support it for women. There's no. Wow. So the focus in cognition that people talk about having, that happens in men, but not in women. Blood glucose control that people talk about with fasting happens in men, not with women. In fact, women become more glucose intolerant. We end up with a greater sympathetic drive instead of a parasympathetic drive. And we end up with more um, signaling to increase the cereal fat instead of losing it. So this is where that misstep in the fitness industry is talking about fasted and fasted training. They've taken it from a clinical environment, pulled it over without understanding that that generalization isn't necessarily appropriate. And basing a lot of it on Victor Longo's research that is from rats and male participants. None of them are women. Until you look at the sedentary, overweight to obese, postmenopausal women that there were two studies done. And now we have all these physicians that are telling postmenopausal women they need to do fasted or ketogenic training or dieting. And it's absolutely not the right thing for longevity and health. Wow. Wow. Makes a lot of sense, right? Since training is a stress and we should fuel around, it's a stress that we want, right? Because it results in positive, positive adaptations, but makes a lot of sense that we want to fuel around that kind of stress so that we do have those positive adaptations. Exactly. Well, this was amazing. I think, you know, and by the way, I have no bias for or against fasting. I just, I am not an expert in nutrition. So I like to bring on the experts and ask the questions and have you all explain. Um, Just wanted to kind of say that, but I think that you explained it beautifully and it really does make a lot of sense. So thank you so, so much for coming on. Is there anything we missed or anything that you want to say before we wrap up? Oh gosh, so many things. No. <laughs> um, I know. So many things. Yeah. I, I, I guess the biggest thing is I want women to understand that they need to be proactive and especially in a lot of the information that's coming out in the fitness world. They need to look at where was that research originating? Was it clinical or not? Is it viable for me as a 20 to 30-year-old, as a 30 to 40-year-old or beyond? Because if we start having that eye to the information that's coming out, it gives women more empowerment to be like, wait a second, that's not appropriate for me. This is based on men. And I know that my physiology is different. I can either go ask someone about it, feel free, you know, ping me at any point, or there's some other female um, experts out there as well, but just really questioning because for so long, women have just been the brunt end of generalized data coming over and not actually asking, is it viable for that translation? And we know that most of it is not. So just ask that question. 
that's the one thing I want people to do is ask questions. So powerful. So powerful. Well, Dr. Sims, thank you so much. Can you tell the audience how everyone can find you? You have several books now. You've got a great Instagram. Tell us all the things. Yeah, our new book just came out last week, um, Next Level, and that's for the peri and and, um, perimenopause and beyond. And before that, we have Roar. And Roar is just touches from puberty all the way through menopause. So it's more the general scope. So those are the books. But we have courses that dive a bit deeper into this from long courses that are seven to eight weeks to short one hour uh, mini courses. And you can find that on drstacysims.com. Um, Instagram, Facebook's Dr. Stacy Sims. So trying to put out all the scientific non-biased information that I can about women. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much. And um, I know my audience is going to eat this up. So you might get lots of DMs. (laughs) So thank you so much for coming on.